We're turning back this morning to Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Luke 13, 22 through 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you are yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Father, as we come to Christ's words here, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what Christ is sharing with us when he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Lord, we know that unless your spirit works, it will prove unfruitful. So Lord, we ask that you would be gracious in Jesus' name. Amen. If one of your friends were to come up to you and ask you, what must I do to be saved? I want you to think about what your answer might be. What would you say to them in a moment if they sprung that question on you? What must you do to be saved? Or let's pretend that one of your unbelieving friends cracked open a Bible and looked at Luke chapter 5, verse 32, that reads, uh, Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they came to you and said, what does that mean? That Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but he called sinners to repentance. What is repentance? I wonder if you would know how to describe repentance to one of your unbelieving friends. As we're going to see today, repentance is attached to the gospel. You can't preach the gospel without preaching repentance. In Luke 13.3, A few weeks ago, we read how Jesus said, No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
So unless a person repents, they will all likewise perish. We must know what it means to repent. Now, I thought this was a two-part sermon on this text. We found out last week it turned into a three-part. If you look at your notes, we see the question, the plea, and then you see three voyages into the future. One is a glimpse of Judgment Day. One is a glimpse of those in hell. And one is a surprising reversal. Next week, we're going to look at the voyages. Today, we're going to finish looking at the plea because a question came to Jesus. Those who were following Christ were listening carefully and one of the disciples comes to him and begins to start to figure out something And he wants to confirm it. He says, Lord, are those who will be saved be few? That's the question that comes to Christ. And he responds to that with a plea. It's as if he says, I don't want to just satisfy your curiosity to that question. He immediately goes to the soul of the person asking the question. And he begins with this word, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive is the word that he uses. And last week we looked at that word. Uh, In Greek, it's agonizomai, where we get agonize agonized to enter through the narrow door. And as Christians, we might think, well, now if someone were going to come and ask me how to be saved, am I going to use a word like agonize or strive to enter through the narrow door? Because Jesus goes on to say in this passage, those who do not strive to enter, those who do are not agonizing to enter through the narrow door will be those who are weeping and gnashing their teeth. And one of the things I said last week is that what Jesus means by strive in the context of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13 is he's saying, repent. He's saying the same thing he's saying in verse 3 of chapter 13 when he says, unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. So today, we're going to spend time trying to answer the question, what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to strive to enter through the narrow door? Uh, If we were going to do a review of chapter 12 and 13, which we're not going to take but 30 seconds here, I just want to remind you of what we see. We saw at the end of chapter 12 that at the end of this sermon, 
Jesus says, settle with your accuser before you get to the judge. You're living on borrowed time. There's pardon if you look to me now. And yet the majority of the crowds are either verdicts still out on Christ or they're outright looking to catch him in his words. They're opposed to him. The leaders are saying he does what he does by the power of Satan. And then if we're going to go further back into chapter 12, Jesus tells the story about the servants who master went on a journey. And he says, be ready for his return, lest he come and see you not doing what he asked you to do. The idea is be ready. Recognize the times. Run to Christ while there's still time. And then he tells the parable of the rich fool whose crops have a tremendous year. And he's thinking, what should I do? I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. And then I'll be able to eat, drink, and be merry and relax for the rest of my life. And he says, you fool, this night your soul will be required back from you. He thought he had time. And so the context of this passage ought not surprise us. At first it seems weird. Strive to enter through the narrow door. We talked last week that salvation is by grace alone, not by works. And yet, when it comes to the question of what must I do to be saved, we're told to repent and believe or to strive to enter through the narrow door. So what does it mean to strive to enter through? First, uh, to answer that question, we need to define repentance because that's what Jesus is calling for. Repentance is, first of all, a change of mind that results in a change of action. The change of mind has fruit attached to it. Literally, the word means to change one's mind, to change the way they think to such a degree that the actions change, which is no surprise because when you define the human heart biblically, we think out of our heart, we desire out of our heart, and our actions flow out of our heart. Jesus teaches that our words flow out of our heart. Sexual immorality flows out of our heart. Actions, thoughts, desires come from within. Repentance is a change of mind. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts 26 and look at verse 19. The whole book of Acts, as the apostles and the first disciples are preaching the gospel, they're 
preaching the gospel and commanding people to repent. Almost even more often than saying believe, they say repent. And they're not two different things. They're the opposite side of the same coin. To believe in Christ is to repent and turn to Christ. Look at what Paul says before King Agrippa. How he describes his ministry. Oh, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared to those in Damascus, or first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So he was proclaiming to people, you need to change the way you're thinking about God. You need to think differently about God, so much so that your actions will follow. And if you want to flip to Luke chapter 3, I'll give you another example. When John the Baptist was preparing the way for Christ in his ministry, uh, back in Luke chapter 3, verse 7, we read, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, literally, children of the snake, you children of the devil. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Here's what he's saying. You didn't have a change of mind. (laughs) You're not here. You shouldn't be here for this baptism. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? Since when did you see yourself as sinners thinking that the judgment of God's going to come upon you? I will know that that happened in your mind when your deeds match up with your profession of repentance. So it's a change of mind that results in a change of action. Let's think about the change of mind. It's a change of mind about God. When a person is called to repent, they're called to see God as He really is, as Yahweh, the God who is. If you know God is the God who is, the Creator, you recognize you're accountable to Him. You see that He is terrifyingly holy and righteous and just. When a person repents, they begin to see that not only is he holy and just, but he's good and he's wise and he's beautiful. That God is love. And the person begins to see that he is worthy of all of our life and worship. It's a change of mind about who God is. This God that was formally ignored and viewed as maybe helpful in certain circumstances is now viewed as the God that our soul is accountable to. Our soul will be required back, just like the rich man. 
It could be tonight, just like it was for the rich man. It's a change of mind in believing God is who his word says he is. John Piper writes, repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all of our praise in all of our obedience. It's a change of mind. Repentance is also a change of mind, not only about God, but about our sin. These things always go together. Repentance involves a new understanding of your sin. The lost world might know they're sinners, but they don't know they're sinners in the way the Bible says they are. In fact, we as Christians often forget. You know, we read Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, and this is a story, and, and we kind of read it, and we know, yeah, it's the fall of humanity, and, and yet we don't grasp the horror of what's taking place. We begin to see what sin is, that it's our pride, it's our selfishness, it's our unbelief, and that this sin deserves punishment in hell for all eternity. A person who truly repents recognizes the horror of their sin, but then also says, What's rightly deserved for it is eternal punishment in hell because they see their sin is against an eternal God. They see his glory. They see who he is. They see how horrible their rebellion is. And so they agree that the cost for sin is rightly eternal punishment in hell. It's one, changing one's mind about sin. You begin to see your sin as poisonous and deadly. <laughs> and you begin to acquire murderous hatred feelings for it. Rather than a hiding of it and a cultivating of it, there begins to be a, oh, I hate this. It's rebellion against God. It brings death. you begin to see that you no longer want to cultivate your sin. You no longer want to justify it or crave it. You no longer believe that it's going to bring about happiness in your life. And so now you seek to kill it whenever it appears in your life. You begin to see that there's no hope of salvation in yourself. There is no hope of happiness outside of Christ. It's a change of mind about God and a change of mind about sin. Uh, turn again with me to Acts chapter 2. I want to demonstrate this. Through the apostles as they preach the gospel. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Peter, 
in this incredible sermon says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Let everyone know that this Jesus is Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see what he did? He said, let everyone know, here's my sermon. This man is Yahweh, the God who is. He's the Lord and Christ, and you killed him. This is what preaching the gospel looks like. And then he says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Praise God. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Here's the question I asked you at the beginning of the sermon. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What must we do? He says, you need to change your mind about God and about your sin and turn to Christ. There's the repentance. And be baptized. You say, well, what's that have to do with anything? Well, the baptism has no magic in and of itself, but the baptism represents a dying to yourself. It's a dying to your old nature. So he's saying you need to change your mind about God and agree that in yourself there's nothing good worthy to live. That you need to be found holy in Christ. And then if you look at Acts, well, I want to make one more point on that verse. And then it says, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, when you turn to God, God is so personal that he comes and he lives inside of you. God himself, you now have a relationship as you turn. The word repent literally means a 180. Here's how I was thinking Here's how I was walking, but then I realized what this is, and I realized the only hope's over here, and I turn, and I walk this way, and this God I'm now faced up to puts a spirit within me, and I have a personal relationship to Him. It's incredible. Look at Acts 17. Uh, Verse 30. Here Paul says, here's how he preaches the gospel. The times of ignorance uh, are the times of ignorance of God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You used to be thinking, you used to be ignorant towards God. You didn't even know what he was really like. But now God commands people everywhere to change the way they think about him and think about their sin. He commands people everywhere to repent Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. They need to remember that 
I'm a judge and I've appointed Jesus Christ as the one to do that final judgment. People need to change their mind about Christ, about God, about their sin. They need to turn. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again on this. So as this sermon, as Paul's preaching this sermon, some people said, we won't change our mind. We're going to keep mocking Him. Even though God from heaven commands, you change your mind the way you think about Him. They mock and they say, no. And others said, another day. We'll hear you hear you again about this later. Three verses later, it says Paul left Athens. You see, they heard the gospel. They didn't feel any sort of desire in that situation to repent and turn to him. There are some people who say, yeah, this is pretty good. I want to think about this more. I want to hear about this more. But did they really know who he was? And did they really, were they really cut to the heart? If they were, you would go running like crazy to find the Savior. If they really knew who they were. And then in, turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 20. Paul to the Ephesian elders describes his ministry like this. He says, he's pointing out how he did not shrink from declaring to you everything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn towards God, trust in Christ, change your mind about him. Number four is kind of a summary. Repentance is a change of one's direction in life. Repentance involves a changing of your mind about your sin in God that results in a change of one's direction. Here's what Charles Spurgeon writes about repentance. He says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin and a mourning that we've committed it and a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. So repentance is just not a mere, yeah, I'm a sinner and God is good, but it cuts to the heart. There's a resolute, I want to serve the Lord with my life rather than myself with my life. J.I. Packer writes this, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at three, these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. So repentance is taking what you know of your sin, 
turning from that, giving of what you know of your life, what you have to offer to God and turning to Him. And as Christians, we grow. As born-again Christians, we grow in repentance. We understand greater and greater of how wonderful God is and how terrible our sin is and how precious our Savior is and how worthy He is to have all of our life. And then Packer writes this. He gives this illustration. He gets asked the question, what is repentance? And here's what he says, quote, In the military, no one doubts what is meant when the order is given. Halt! About turn. Quick march. That's very clear language, he says. Human beings, by our instinct, walk at a distance from God. And God says, turn around. Face me and walk towards me. The basic problem, he writes, of fallen human nature is that we all want to be independent of God. And God says, stop it. Stop living as though you're independent from Him. Stop. Turn around. Walk towards Me. He's saying the very nature of man desires an autonomous life in which we are God of our own life. And then he says this, and this is where it gets pretty sober. The reason why the theme of repentance is neglected, not only by society, but by the church, is because it is a costly thing to repent. So he says churches might preach the gospel, so-called gospel, but they'll leave repentance out. Christians might share with their friends. They might tell them they need to receive Jesus. But do they even know how to preach repentance to them? Do they even know what Christ himself calls for? Do they even know what it means to strive to enter through the narrow door? J.I. Packer goes on to say, it's a costly thing to repent. It does mean reshaping your life in quite a radical way. And people, because they find it too costly a prospect, try to devise a way of being a Christian which doesn't involve anything as radical as about turn, quick march. He's saying that's too offensive. So people make up a style of Christianity which says, I don't need to stop. I don't really need to turn around. I just need to do this little spiritual prayer. Or I just need to receive Jesus. Let's not get real radical on it here. Even though baptism represents death to self. A change of direction in one's life. Then he goes on to say, 
the end, of course, of true repentance is walking Godward. It is that fellowship with God which becomes a real rich reality. And more and more as one lives the life of repentance and the one who walks Godward testifies to the joys of the new life of being closer and closer to the Father and of His Son, Jesus Christ. The very next chapter in Luke 14, verse 33, Jesus says, So therefore, if anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. (laughs) Why does he say strive to enter through the narrow door? Because the great majority of people are going to try to enter through the door of Christ their way. But you must enter it stripped naked. You must enter it recognizing that your life is nothing. Your only hope is Christ because of your sin. And he's already told us in Luke chapter 9, he, he, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's hard. Take up his cross and follow me. That would hurt. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So have you turned to Christ Repentance is necessary for salvation. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 36 again. Actually, look at verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's necessary. There is no salvation apart from a godly repentance a godly sorrow over sin. In Acts chapter 3, verse 17, look at what he says. And now, brothers, I know that you've acted in ignorance as also your rulers. Their mind wasn't thinking right. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repent. It's a necessary. It's necessary unto salvation. Finally, repentance is a gift of God's grace. Someone might say, well, if I have to repent to be saved, then I must have to earn my salvation. Repentance is a change of mind about God and your sin. Now, here's the question. You really think you have the power to do that yourself? When you're born in Adam, when you're a child of wrath, as Ephesians 2 says, you really think you're going to be able to change the taste buds of your heart 
on your own, be able to change your mind, this God you've been in rebellion to, now you're going to be able to love the sin which you used to love, now you're going to be able to hate. Repentance is a gift of the new birth. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 18. We read, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. When the Bible speaks of repentance, they speak of it as something granted sovereignly from God. In 2 Timothy 2.24, he's telling Timothy how he must... uh, how his life must be guarded as a believer. And here's the reason. He, he says in verse 24, the Lord's servant, this is 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. They might come to their senses and escape. You want to know why he says strive, agonize? Because when you realize your predicament you're in, you flee to the Savior. You run to the narrow door. Someone might read this passage and say, it's so sad that it's a, it's, a, it's a narrow door that most people aren't going to get in. Listen, there's a door. There's not supposed to be a door. We sinned against God. What we deserve is eternal punishment in hell. Adam and Eve were pushed out of the garden. The cherubim were put in front of the garden with flaming swords, reminding man that you can't walk with God because of your sin. But then God told them to make a tabernacle, to make a temple, to have this place where he will dwell with them. But he puts a curtain up that no one can go behind with cherubim on it saying you can't get in here because of your sin. But then Jesus Christ, when he breathed his last breath, the curtain tears in two and there's a door for sinners to run to. There's a door for us to immediately agonize, turn around, count this life as nothing. Pray, Lord, let me die to myself. Christ is worthy of my life. Christ is worthy of the prayer. Whatever you want from me, God, I will do for you. I want to obey you. I want to live for you. Yes, the door is narrow. And that people who think they're getting in because of their good works won't get in. That's true. And yes, there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Yes, that's true. But there is a door. And it's my prayer that you haven't heard of that door and been like, yeah, I know there's a door. Yeah, I know I'm doing this, but what's the big deal? My prayer is, is that 
the Holy Spirit in power would cut you to the heart, would make you hate your own sin and say, all right, God, I give up. Christ, you have my life. What it looks like to glorify you, I want to do. And I know there's some of you here thinking, man, I'll never be able to repent good enough. Well, that's right. You're looking at a pastor that can't repent perfectly. But there is a, such a thing as true repentance that is a gift given at the new birth to the believer. And although it's not perfect, it's real. Have you ever read Romans 7? Paul says, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I find myself doing this. And then he says, who will save me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God. It's Christ. Well, how could that be? Well, all of chapter 8 is about the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in our life. So have you obeyed Christ's command to strive to enter through the narrow door? That is the question. And when your friend comes to you and says, what must I do to be saved? You need to tell them about God. You need to tell them about their sin. You need to show them the love of God in Jesus Christ. How not only you can be forgiven of your sins, but you can be made children of God within His family. And you tell them, count the cost. Don't start building the barn before you count the cost. Otherwise, what you're going to do is you're going to try to live this quasi, you know, life. I'm a Christian with no repentance. And as we'll see next week, the majority of people that stand before God on that day claiming Christ will be left outside. And he'll be inside with those whom he knows because they turned and they walked through that door when they trusted Christ and they have a relationship with the Father and God knows them. That's my prayer. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. It's my prayer that we preach the gospel the way Christ preaches the good news. Father, we thank you so much that you loved us that you would take the biggest rebels, those created in your image who are going their own way, and you sent your only son to die for them. When we were rotten, when we were still sinners, you sent him to us. Father, we thank you for that love and that mercy. Lord, I pray that we would be people that are humbled by the gospel that seek a relationship with you, that run to Christ. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.